and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope this finds you safe and happy and healthy and loved and all of those things. You are loved. We're going to talk about love today. I'm going to discuss love um, from a spiritual perspective, from my personal viewpoint as somebody who practices shamanism. But I hope everybody is doing really well. Because I love you. So one of the things, um, you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, is that I usually define my terms. So when, when I'm talking about something, when I'm talking about spirit, I'll define what I mean by that. Or, you know, any other any other thing that I'm really focused on. I'm going to... I'm going to define what I mean because language is imprecise and we all might have a different idea when I use a word like love or spirit, what that means. And I, you know, will say this every time, but I don't, I'm not trying to supplant your definitions of things. If my definition of something differs from yours, then that's great. But I'm going to spend a while today talking about love, the word love. What does the word love mean? Now, it's a little bit of a challenge in English because we have this one word that we use for all kinds of things, right? Like I say, I love my girlfriend. I love my children. I love cheeseburgers. I love jazz music. They're all different things, at least slightly differently. You know, I don't have romantic love for a cheeseburger. Some people may, and that's fine. I don't shame. But uh, that's not what I'm talking about. So we use it often as a really extreme form of like. I don't like cheeseburgers. I love cheeseburgers. Right. Um, but so much of our preconceptions about love and what love is are shaped by things that may not be so loving, like movies, like a popular, you know, popular culture. You know, when we look at romantic love, how many love stories are there out there? You know, and you know, fairy tale based stuff. You know, the idea of um, courtly love, for example. Now, the interesting thing I watched, um, I watched a, a documentary recently talking about sex in the Middle Ages, in medieval times, right? And they were saying that you know we put we placed this romantic. Um, idea on courtly love because that's what we get. We get, you know, these stories or we get movies or whatever. But back then, courtly love was about um, single men hitting on married women because people didn't marry for love back then. 
And so they would write poems and they would, you know, and there was a lot, lots and lots of affairs going on, particularly in, in courts in, you know, by court, I mean like Kings and Queens courts. Um, there was a, there was a ton of sleeping around going on. So, you know, we talk about, we, you know, we have words that equate love and sex. They aren't necessarily equated, right? We say making love, we're making love. Um, you know, it's a euphemism for sex. But, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. So what, you know, when I talk about love, when I talk about love from a spiritual perspective, what am I really talking about? So I'm going to draw. Um, I'm going to draw my definition of love that I'll work with today from um, from the Sedona method, which was um, sort of came from a man named Lester Levinson. Um, then there was a book written by Hale Dwoskin and their courses and all kinds of things. And I have. Uh, gone out to Sedona and taken a course uh, with the author. I never met Lester Levinson. He passed away, um, I think, in the nineties. Um, but it, you know, the Sedona method is really wonderful, and I highly recommend it um, for just about anybody. Uh, it, it's you know, human operating system stuff. It's good, good for anybody, and it's sort of paraspiritual in that it's not. Um, you know, it's not dogmatic or religious or involving enlightenment or anything like that. It's like, what's going on right now? What's happening right now for you on an emotional level? What are we holding on to? What are we pushing away? And so one of the best definitions I heard for love is from that. from the Sedona method and there the definition of love that I learned from that is acceptance. It's like complete acceptance. Now, how many of us can say that we completely accept another? And we're talking about, you know, human to human or being to being love here. How many of us can say that we absolutely accept another person fully, like no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter what qualities they have, do we fully accept them? Or do we say in the back of our mind, gosh, I really wish I could change this X, Y, Z, you know? Um, you know, Wanting to change somebody, wanting control over somebody, that's not love. So one of an important aspect of love and lots of spiritual and self-help people talk about this is self-love. And self-love is complete and full acceptance. Now, there's this kind of insidious lie that we might tell ourselves that, well, if I love myself, if I fully accept myself, I will never improve. I'll never change. I'll never make 
there'd be no motivation for me to, um, you know, to better myself, to deepen my spirituality, to, I don't know, whatever, learn how to juggle. Um, that's just not true. Uh, you don't have to be motivated by loathing, by self-hatred, by not accepting yourself to, uh, to uh, sorry, just making a little noise there. Uh, you don't have to be motivated by self-hatred, self-loathing, not accepting yourself being angry with yourself, beating yourself up, that doesn't have to be your motivation for doing things, for doing anything. And when you have self-acceptance, when you have self-love, what you have, what you get out of that is you get a sense of discrimination about your motivations for doing certain things, right? Now, how many of us would have uh, dated the wrong person for so long or been married to the wrong person for so long or, you know, taken a job we hated or, you know, done any of those things if we were just fully accepting of ourselves, right? I need to do X to make myself feel good about myself. I need to be in a relationship. I need to have a certain job. I need to have a certain degree. I need to have a certain title. I need to have X to accept myself. Well, that's looking in the wrong direction. That's looking for external validation. This isn't to say that external validation isn't nice. It is. It is. It's nice when somebody loves you just for you. But when somebody loves you conditionally, right, you're in a relationship. I love you, but only when you pick up your socks. Well, that kind of means that, you know, that means that the love is conditional, that there are parts of you that this person cannot love because they can't accept them. And this is not, again... We're walking, we walk a fine line here. This is not to say that if there's something dissatisfactory in a relationship, that you shouldn't talk about it, you shouldn't discuss it, you shouldn't try to. I don't like, I don't like X, or I feel upset when X happens, is not the same as, well, I don't love you if you do X, right? This is also not to say that we have, that we, um, have to be in a specific relationship to love somebody. So I can um, love somebody that I'm no longer in a relationship with because the relationship was unhealthy, but I don't have to reject the person at the core. And I'll get into that in a second. I'll get into our core being because this is... This is the gist. This is the thing that we need to focus on. So, in shamanism, in the type of shamanism that I practice, you know, we do 
what's called shamanic journeying. We go into trance and we explore other worlds. We work with spirits, all of this stuff. But there's a great deal of self-exploration as well, which involves going into our the center of ourselves. Not physically. We can metaphorically envision this as the physical, you know, like our heart center, that sort of thing. But going in and exploring the core of who we are. And what we find is at our core is this divine spark, this connection that we have to everything in the universe, to divinity, to spirit, to everything physically in the universe is connected. And so understanding that, understanding that connection is when we, there are parts of the universe that we don't love, and by love I mean acceptance, I don't mean, um, I don't mean uh, allowing bad behavior. See, there's a difference. See, when my children were little, or even now, I mean, they're, they're, they're great kids, so they don't, they don't really get into trouble. But when they were little and they would act up, I would remind them that no matter what you do, I love you completely with my whole heart. I will never love you less. And it doesn't matter what you do. Now, I may not like what you do, but I always love you. And my daughter, um, one of my daughters, when she was about four years old, I'm so proud of my kids, uh, if you can't tell from how I speak about them. But when she was four, I, I said something to her that I had told myself for years I would never say to my children. But it's one of those things, it's a phrase that I grew up hearing and it slipped out in a moment of anger, in a moment of, oh, you know, this this kid is, uh, you know, her behavior's getting on my last nerve. And I looked at her and I said, "What is wrong with you?" I'm I'm, you know, shocked that I said that, but I did, and I own it. Own your behavior, people. If you screw up. Say, I screwed up. We are human beings. This is part of self-love and self-acceptance. So I said that to her. I said, what is wrong with you? And she looked at me. Her parent, her adult, much larger than she is, who she relies on for food and housing and, and toys and things like that. And she looks at me in the eye and says, there is nothing wrong with me. And it rocked me back on my heels. And I said to her in the next, you know, after it took me, you know, maybe five seconds to pull my thoughts together. And I said to her, you are absolutely 100% right. And I am absolutely 100% wrong for saying that to you. And I should never say that to you. There is nothing wrong with you. 
I don't like your behavior right now. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. And I was wrong. I was wrong for saying that. And if I ever say that again, I want you to call me on it like you did now. If I ever use that phrase, you ever hear me use that phrase, I don't care if it's with you or somebody else, call me on it. So one of, you know, we think of uh, the opposite of love as hate, right? And that can, you know, that certainly, that certainly could be, that can be the case, right? I, I hate, you know, I almost, I almost hate to say this phrase, but like saying I hate you to somebody is about as extreme as you can get. And what do we mean by that? What do we mean when, when, you know, if we say, I don't know that I've ever used the phrase, I hate you to somebody, maybe when I was a kid or something, but as an adult, I generally try not to use the word hate in regard to other people. I might say, um, you know, I hate orange circus peanuts, which if you don't know is a type of candy that's rather nasty. Um, <laughs> if you like them, that's totally fine. Um, but it's not the same thing. It's, it's, uh, I, I reject these or, orange circus peanuts. So hatred is about rejection, right? And when we look at hatred from an ism perspective, racism, sexism, all of these things, what it is is something that social psychologists some kind, sometimes call moral exclusion. And what that means is that you know, we look at another person and we say, you are not as worthy of human compassion and understanding as others are for whatever reason. I've identified you as a different race. I've identified you as a different gender. I've identified you as having different sexuality, different nationality, you know, all those isms, right? Bigotry, that's what that is. Hatred from bigotry. I don't I don't, you are not as human as I am. You are not as deserving of human rights, human compassion, any of those things as I am. That's what hatred is. It's it's rejection of the person based on some perceived quality. So looking at love as you know complete complete acceptance of another person. We can look at hate as the opposite, as, as rejection, complete rejection of the other person. You know, and when you see, um, you know, when you see like hate speech out there, you know, we can see that. We can see dehumanization is a is a big one. And let me tell you, we have to be really careful these days. Um, and you know, I realize I have people all over the world who listen to this podcast, but. Um, I'm speaking in the United States. There's a movement right now. Um, it is masquerading as a political movement, but it's an ideological movement that is doing things like banning books and trying to describe masculinity as basically as um, cruelty and a lack of caring. And... 
this is coming from we we know this is not a conspiracy theory this is not whatever this is coming from a particular religious organization religious movement that is politically active it donates a lot of money under the scenes to politicians and stuff and they're doing things like banning books and and all of these things and if you look at it through the lens of they're trying to um program empathy out of people what's the interest in getting rid of people's empathy well if you look at it from the perspective that this ideological movement is a white supremacist movement this is what has to happen for taking away the rights or killing or you know whatever other human beings treating other human beings as less than. We have to remove our human empathy for these four other people that we can identify as other, we are othering them. You know, the other political party, the other gender, the other gender identity, the other sexuality, the other race, the other national origin, the other religion or spirituality. This is a dangerous thing, and we see it, um, you know, I did study propaganda a little bit in school, um, in both in undergrad and grad school, and of course, the you know, really, um, you know, the, the, the people who got propaganda right with, the mo- with some of the most horrible consequences were uh, the Nazis in Germany, right? We know this. We know they had a minister of propaganda. And we got, uh, you know, we, during the war and after the war in World War II, they, we captured, um, you know, we captured films from Germany. Now, there was propaganda happening in the United States too. All nations have propaganda, um, particularly if they have to go to war because they have to convince people like generally we don't want to kill other people. So we have to convince people and a lot of U S propaganda is very nationalist. It's very, Oh, we're the best. We're number one, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, But there's this sort of subtle thing of everybody who's not American is, is other. So what, I saw uh, from seeing some of these, you know, pre-World War II and during World War II propaganda films when I was studying it in grad school is um, they would equate the Jews with rats. So they would show, you know, what they considered a stereotypical Jewish person, right, with physical characteristics. They were like, oh, that you know, this is the stereotypical Jewish person. And then they would immediately cut to a shot of rats, right? And then they would go back and then cut to a shot of rats and go back. And, and so they were creating this association with rats, right? With these animals that spread plague and were, you know, um, you know, just vermin, less than human to be eradicated, to be exterminated for the good of the good people, right? That weren't rats. So they were dehumanizing, right? They were taking away people's concept of these are human beings. 
These are human beings just like you and I. Yeah, they have a different ethnic background, they have a different religious background, whatever, but they have the same types of hopes and fears. They love their family like we love our families. So we see this um, taking place in some of the political rhetoric that's happening, particularly in the United States. And I want to tell you that uh, every time we see people, particularly in the U.S., talking about the global elite. If you hear that, you hear globalism, global elite, whatever. These are white supremacist dog whistles for Jews, basically, neo-Nazi talking points. Um, You hear globalism, new world order. This is all part of this anti-Jewish conspiracy theory goes hand in hand with what they call white replace the great white replacement theory um which is you know that um the bad people whoever they happen to be targeting you know the other political party whatever want to replace replace white people and make them the minority and we are we white people are so persecuted and xyz um it's all a part of this. It's all a part of maintaining ethnic power. It's all a part of spreading hatred by making a threat that doesn't exist. So pay attention to that stuff. Like, even if you think it's goofy conspiracy theory stuff, know that there are millions of people out there who don't. So this week, um, radio conspiracy theory talk show host Alex Jones lost close to a billion dollars in a defamation lawsuit. And why was he, why were, you know, he defamed the families who lost children during the Sandy Hook school shooting. For years he was claiming that they're actors, that they're fake, that their kids never existed, that they were part of some conspiracy. None of those things were true. But why were they awarded so much money, 900 and something million dollars? Well, the reason is, and this is important because Alex Jones spreads this global elite white supremacist, even though he's not, he's not out there spouting absolute racist hatred, but what he's doing is he's talking using these code words you know, like globalist and global conspiracy of the elite and yada, yada, yada. This is white supremacist rhetoric. And the importance of him losing that much money is because he has millions of followers who's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year off his conspiracy-laden... TV show and selling products on the air and all this stuff and you know the end of the world is coming and you better stock up on you know whatever it is he's whatever it is he's selling and you know fat burning pills and you know just all kinds of crazy stuff but you know it, we might look at this guy as crazy but he's got a following of millions tens of millions of people And so these people, 
these people who follow him believed him when he said the Sandy Hook school shooting in which, you know, I think it was something like 19 people died, most of them children, very young children. When he said these people are faking it, they're trying to manipulate you, they're trying to take your guns away, they're trying to take your rights away, whatever. The people who follow him believed him, a lot of them. Enough where these people have been harassed for over a decade. They've been shot at. All all a part of furthering this essentially white supremacist agenda. And it can be hard to tie these things together. And again, this isn't this isn't a conspiracy theory. I didn't. I'm not making this up. And this isn't coming from. This has been studied by groups that study hate movements. You know, um, but the you know the award was so high because in part I believe because he had such a large audience for his hatred. There's a lot of people out there these days who have realized that keeping people, for lack of a better term, dumb and afraid is profitable. And they use very strong manipulation tactics. And that is hatred. Hatred is dumb and and scared, focused on a group some identifiable group of people or made-up group of people like a global elitist cabal running things behind, you know, behind the scenes, having a sip of coffee. So, anyway, that's enough about hate. I don't want to focus on hate, but it's an important contrast. It's an important contrast uh, to love, And so love as acceptance, as full acceptance, as holding, you know, holding space for is a very divine feminine concept. There's a divine masculine concept of love as well, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, so in, in my, sh- you know, shamanic work, You know, we we do some work with um, this dimension, I guess, for lack, you know, again, for lack of a better term, this dimension we call the void. It's a veil of um, it's hard to describe. Um, it's it's nothing, but it's also everything. It's the formlessness behind which the universe emanates it's also referred to as the womb of creation it's the space behind which everything including consciousness um plays out or is born and and you know experiences arise not to get too philosophical but it's a little hard because without it experiencing it or even with experiencing it it defies words so the void sometimes is seen as darkness and it can be very you know forever we've been taught as 
um, taught that to be afraid of the dark, that darkness, like forces of darkness, the dark side of the force, yada, 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 this, this dichotomy between light and dark. And I'm going to talk about this in a future podcast episode because I'm going to um, interview the author of a really great book that I'm reading right now, and um, I'm in touch with her publicity people, and she's going to come on the podcast. So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so we can talk about this. But um, her point in the book is called Luminous Darkness, um, and the author's last name is Tull, T-U-L-L. If you want to look it up, it just came out in September. Um, and I believe I'll be interviewing her sometime in November, which is, I just feel, uh, I just feel grateful that, um, you know, she's probably very busy promoting her book and teaching and all of that stuff. But, um, anyway, um, one of the things she points out in her book that I really love is that hierarchies, any kind of hierarchy is a cognitive distortion Think about that. So thinking things like men are better than women or white people are better than black people or um, rich people are better than poor people or any of those things, those hier- that hierarchical thinking is very dualistic and really a cognitive distortion. One of the things, it's also very patriarchal. The patriarchy is, has nothing to do with the divine masculine. Let me just set that straight. You know, I've had conversations where with a lot of people, there, if you, if you um, go on Amazon.com or whatever country you live in, go on your version of Amazon or you go on Amazon.com and search for the divine masculine, you'll find, I don't know, a handful of books about the divine Divine Masculine, maybe, if you're lucky, a handful. If you search for the Divine Feminine, however, you will find, I don't know, hundreds of books, lots of books, dozens at least, a ton of books about the Divine Feminine, Divine Feminine Rising, this and that. Um, And that's not, you know, having a lot of information about the Divine Feminine is not a problem. Having a lack of information about the divine masculine is a problem. And so what what has happened, and my take on what has happened in the world, is we have, in the Western world in particular, we've been living in a patriarchy for thousands of years. Even though, um, you know, we had, there were times during the patriarchy where there were um, gods and goddesses, now... Uh, monotheistic God is very much often thought of as a masculine force, right? But patriarchy is all about hierarchy. It's all about putting like one guy in charge. And I'm not bashing, I'm not bashing on Catholicism, but I'm using this as an example of patriarchy, right? You look at the Catholic church, you have the Pope, you have the one guy on top, Below that, you have the cardinals and the bishops. Below that, you have the priests. Below that, you have the... Right? So there's this huge hierarchy. That's patriarchy, and it comes out of Rome. It comes out of military orders, having, you know, generals and lieutenants and um, centurions and whatever else they had for ranks in the Roman army. It comes out of military ranking. 
And, you know, that that was important when you were warlike, when you were taking over other countries. You had to be able to, you know, issue orders and, and you know, uh, without without judgment, that's how, mili- you know, that's how militaries work, generally speaking. You can't just have people doing whatever they whatever they want. They work in a giant hierarchy. And that is inherently patriarchal. Where more matriarchal systems are less are more egalitarian, less hierarchical. And so one of the reasons I love shamanism is that there's not really a hierarchy. Yes, I have a teacher who I go to for or have gone to for for you know, classes and learning things and, and who I can call upon sometimes when I have uh, questions or issues and that sort of thing. But that's just because she knows, you know, she has more experience. You know, she she's a couple decades older than I am and um, has more experience and um, knows more things and has experienced more things. But she's not my boss. I don't have a boss. I'm not the boss of my students. I tell them I'm a guide, not a guru. And as a shamanic practitioner, as somebody who um, works with people in a healing way, as well as somebody who's a teacher, I view myself as a servant. Not a servant to be ordered around, but a servant in that my job is to serve. My job is to teach. My job is to provide space for healing, guidance, you know, help develop ceremony, you know, which really frees me to do what's best for people. You know, I'm not taking orders from people. If somebody, you know, contacts me and says, I'm ordering a, I'm ordering a soul retrieval. I'm mailing you a check for $20. Well, that's not how it works, right? <laughs> um, you know, when people come to me for a healing session, even though they, they sometimes they ask me for something specific like soul retrieval, I'll say, well, you know, um, I always work this way. I get in there and I ask my helping spirits, what is the work that would benefit you most today? And that might be soul retrieval, but it might be something else. And it may be soul retrieval and something else, right? There might be some work that they want to do before soul retrieval, but let's find out. Let's find out together. Let's find out what will be most beneficial to you. Um, one of my clients, this is, I don't, I don't want to brag or, or whatever. This, this isn't, this isn't meant to be a brag. This is meant to be, um, an explanation of something that made me feel really good in working with clients. So I have a client that I've worked with, um, a number of times and, um, you know, in, in a couple of different contexts, I've done healing sessions, I've done coaching sessions with this client and, you know, um, this client said to me once, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, you were the first person that has ever made me completely comfortable just being who I am without, without judgment, without, you know, just comfortable in my own skin. I cannot tell you how much that means to me. That is a part, that is a part or the major part of my life's purpose is to help people understand 
that they are whole, complete, and worthy of love, worthy of much more love than they have ever experienced, no matter who they are, no matter what their identity is, right? No matter what they've done in the past, what their ego says, what other people's egos say, This can be a tough thing, right, for people who have done us wrong or who have caused great harms, that sort of thing. And again, I go back to how I've tried to deal with my children, that I don't condone the behavior by loving the person, right? And I'm not, I'm also not declaring, and I will never... um, I never intentionally do anything, do this. I would never intentionally claim that I'm perfect at this. I'll never claim that I have gotten to the point where I, where I have developed enough that I do completely accept everyone. I have unconscious bias. We all do. We all have implicit bias. I recognize that I have implicit bias. I think that puts me... In that, in that regard, ahead of a lot of people, maybe, and just ahead in what I know about myself. The real spiritual frontier, you know, people are really fascinated by the cosmos and astral projection and going to other dimensions and all this stuff, and that's all great and well and good. But it's sort of like, you know, we do space exploration, Right? We send astronauts in space. That's important. We send probes. That's important. But there's still a lot of places on Earth that we haven't explored. And, you know, like the, the deepest parts of the ocean, we're just now figuring out how to explore and finding interesting things about life and very interesting creatures. I was reading an article um, just the other day about a cave... I think it's in Romania. It's in uh, Europe anyway. And, um, you know, the scientists unsealed this cave that had been sealed for 5 million years. And in, inside the cave has its own ecosystem. It was completely dark, of course, because it's a sealed-off cave. So the, um, you know, the organisms in the cave had to live without light. And so many of them evolved to not have eyes but have complex feelers and sensors and all of that sort of thing. And the, you know, the, instead of photosynthesis, you know, um, the simpler organisms live off of chemical reactions from the rock and the water and that sort of thing. Just fascinating stuff. Fascinating. And they're still finding, they're, they have identified dozens of species that don't exist anywhere else. It's cool stuff. Cool stuff. So just like that, just like there's still more to explore here, the the final frontier for us spiritually is to explore inward. Now, a lot of us think we do that. We think that we are, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to learn about myself. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are this? What are that? What are my preferences? Um... But what I'm really talking about here is discovering the love 
in the formlessness at the very core of your being. At the very core of your being is formlessness, meaning, you know, not your body, not even your mind. It's just a place where your thoughts arise and your consciousness is what pays attention to those things. But it's this out of this formlessness, we are little voids. We're little microcosms of the multiverse. Out of this void is where our experience arises, where our physicality arises, where our thoughts, our feelings arise. Yeah, physically we have a brain. I do not believe that the consciousness is wholly located in the brain. We, we can't explain the subjective experience of consciousness through describing, you know, chemical, binary chemical interactions, as complex as they are. We still, you know, consciousness is a problem for science. It's not a problem for spirituality. But it's a problem for science. At least right now it is. Lots of theories... Really hard to, we get, you know, we start to get into philosophy. We start studying things like consciousness. But spiritually, as somebody who practices the art of the shaman, um, the whole universe is conscious. There's consciousness everywhere. Consciousness is what there is. And if we look at hermetic philosophy, um, you know, it talks about the one thing, the one thing, and it talks about gnosis becoming aware of of us being a part of the one thing, right? And this is, uh, you know, what we might we might term enlightenment. Enlightenment's a word that carries a lot of a lot of baggage, a lot of preconceptions. I like the word gnosis, and gnosis um, is an interesting word. It means like knowledge, but this is experiential, non-dualistic knowledge of our, you know, us being inseparable from, again, non-dualistic, inseparable from divinity, where we are not separate from all there is. We're not separate from source. Okay, there are lots of spiritual systems from hermetic philosophy to alchemy to Kabbalah and um, all kinds of stuff that describes things this way. You know, a lot of forms of Buddhism talking about, you know, form and formlessness being the same. So, you know, the philosophy that I, you know, that I most closely associate with is that, you know, in the formlessness, there there is the only thing there is is consciousness. This is the one thing, and out of this one thing comes the many. That's what Taoism talks about, right? And that's um, Hermetics talks about that, and Kabbalah talks about that. So there are all these various philosophies that talk about there's this thing that exists before anything else, right? In Taoism, that's the Tao. The Tao that can be seen is not the true Tao. The Tao that can be, you know, described. It's beyond words. It's formlessness, pure consciousness. It's the source. 
hard to grasp mentally a little bit. Um, but underneath that all, because it because this formlessness that is the ground out of which all experience arises holds everything. It accepts everything. And this is what I think we mean underneath it all when we say God is love. And I would replace the word God here maybe with source, the one, the Tao, you know. Yeah, we, you know, in Western in Western Abrahamic religions, we anthropomorphize God, right? God made man in his image, meaning that God is a dude with a beard who lives in the sky. The images we have of God are, you know, pretty much based on images of uh, Jupiter from, um, you know, from classical art, right? A guy, guy with a long white beard. Um, even the word deity, the, the word deity and the word Zeus and the word Jupiter all come from the same root word or the root uh, name, um, which is Proto-Indo-European um, Dies Pater, who was a god to the hunter-gatherers that um, were the Proto-Indo-European speaking people across Europe and Asia. And um, Dies Pater means um, the father of the morning sky, or I like to say sky daddy. So this is, you know, we get very syncretistic when we build up our ideas about deity. Deity is often associated with the sky, right? Heaven is up there. So we have this, you know, imagery. But, you know, in previously, this god, this sky god, was not the only god. You know, there were lots of gods, but it was also considered that there was a creator or a demiurge that created the the um, physical universe. Now, the demiurge in in a lot of Gnostic belief is the antithesis of of God, basically, that the physical universe is a mistake, that this f- spiritual universe is really all that's real. I'm not sure I buy into that. I'm not sure I buy that the physical universe is a mistake or that it was planned out. But um, is there a consciousness that created everything? Um, You know, instead of giving my opinion on that, what I'll say is that I experience consciousness permeating everything. And there is this sort of oversoul in Sanskrit that's called Brahman, right? Um, that we might call God or we might call source or we might call, quote-unquote, the universe. It's actually a multiverse. Um, the source of all there is. That is consciousness. That's the best description of what we consider God that I can think of. And at its core, it's love because it accepts everything. Everything exists Everything does not, nothing exists separately from it. It's difficult to conceptualize. That's why we anthropomorphize God. We turn God into a a dude living in the sky, walking around on the clouds. Um, A lot of our imagery comes, comes from there.
comes from that. A lot of our imagery of deity comes from that. It's interesting because, um, you know, in other in other systems, um, you know, so the ancient Egyptians had, um, you know, they had they had gods and goddesses that were more or less anthropomorphic, right? But they also had a source god, um, you know, and they worshipped the disk of the sun sometimes, and, you know, um, there were, you know, obviously shifts in religion uh, over time in Egypt and stuff, but, um, you know, try to find non-anthropomorphic gods anywhere. You know, try to find a god that is... uh, you know, we can find beings, we can find holy beings, not usually referred to in the same way we refer to gods. You know, we can find, uh, you know, sacred birds and sacred eagles and, you know, this and that. But as human beings, we like to, we like to turn things into, make things like us, make things anthropomorphic. So, um... But if we can conceive of a formless source that is every, that is everything, that contains everything, that is the source of everything, that's the closest I can get to describing source. And that is love because it holds and accepts everything, everything there is. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this little conversation on love. I will leave you with this. Um, Self-exploration should lead you to loving yourself, even when we're doing shadow work. Shadow work is so important. This describes, you know, accepting all parts of ourselves, even the parts that we have previously rejected, is about loving ourselves. The shadow is are the parts of ourselves that we have rejected. So that is, doing shadow work is loving yourself. So that's important. So think about that. I will, um, I, I know I've done episodes before on the shadow. I will do episodes again on the shadow. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be the next episode or not where I interview the author of Luminous Darkness, but it's a really, really good book. I recommend it, um, and, you know, uh, definitely subscribe to, if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, subscribe to that, because that is going to be an interesting one, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to know that I love you, and stay happy and healthy, and with that, I will leave you till next time. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.